Say you're a young man hoping to become a missionary. How should you prepare? Nick Ripkin has a very practical first step. For goodness sakes, guys, get off the internet. Pornography is killing us. For every single guy on the mission field, we have seven single women. It's like guys on college campuses are praying, Lord, here am I, send my sister. And where are we going to get the tough guys to go to the tough places? Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help right now on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome back to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton. Last week, we heard part one of my recent conversation with Nick and Ruth Ripkin. They've served as missionaries in some of the world's toughest places, and they've spent recent years interviewing literally hundreds of persecuted believers. Their aim is to show the rest of us what we can learn from our brothers and sisters who have faced persecution for their faith in Christ. If you missed any of last week's program, you can hear it again at vomradio.net or look at the VOM Radio podcast stream. When we left off last time, Nick was telling us how valuable it would be for believers in the West to visit missionaries in the countries where they're working. Not necessarily to do some amazing overseas missionary work, but simply to bless and encourage the missionaries by worshiping alongside them. Churches don't do it because you don't ask them. Okay. It's not out of a, you know, a preoccupation with buildings and properties and denominations. It's they don't know. A lot of this is missionaries' responsibility because when we shift it from the open world to the closed world, our churches didn't know how to react. They don't know how to do our security. And, and a lot of times, one of the things that we found among persecuted church, if they do their security so well that the persecutors can't find them, Christians can't find them either. So sometimes we have to take a risk a little bit just so the body of Christ can get together. And so inviting our churches out just for the sake of worship is transformational for those churches too. And, and the reason they don't do it, they don't know that there's a need there. But also the churches need to become comfortable with, and Ruth and I have probably led the way in a lot of this, is when you come home, uh, they've got to allow us to bleed on the carpet and not do a missionary com- commercial that everything is all right and, and the Muslim world is really tenderhearted and, and famines are just the absence of food and, and the sound of bullets help us go to sleep at night. No, this is hard places. And, and sheep have never won a fight with a wolf. And we've got to celebrate our sheep coming home chewed up. I'm not saying go to, el- to airports and hang out the yellow ribbon- ribbons on the yard, but I am. I am. Why, why do we celebrate, uh, and, and we should, military people coming home and let missionaries limp into the airport and we provide a place for them to live and then who hears their story? Jesus himself could not carry his burden all the way to Calvary. They had to get Simon to help do that. Every believer in persecution quits, gives up. 
And unless we do what the Bible says and walk with and be with our brothers and sisters in persecution, they don't make it. Somebody has to carry that cross when they can't carry it. And missionaries have the same thing. It's not because they have poor characters or that they don't, can't cut it. It's that they are surrounded by 99.9% .9 wolves, and that is deadly not only to your body at times, it's, it's really deadly to your soul when you have no place to meet Jesus. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Nick and Ruth Ripken. Nick is the author of a book called The Insanity of God. Nick and Ruth, a lot of your ministry is listening. You go and sit with people, whether it's missionaries or whether it's persecuted Christians, and listen to them. First, why is that so significant? And second, why are Americans typically so poor at it? I will share my own shortcomings um, I think I just want to beat it so my wife won't do it. I'll just, I'll just confess it <laughs> Get myself. Ahead of it. Get ahead of but, it. you know, my personality is pretty extroverted, and, and my heart is so big for people who have lost everything and, and these famine and civil wars, and I just go in there with the backing of my churches and also with the resources that are there internationally and, and look at these people who are dying and starving by the droves. When we went to Somalia, 90% of the people were starving. I went to villages where there was no one alive and there's a granny around the fireplace dead stirring grass that she was cooking and behind her on a, on a bed in a hut was a young girl died pulling a comb through her hair. They died trying to live. And you're just seeing that by the thousands, not the hundreds. And you're watching that kind of thing. And so I'm saying, what can I do for you? I've got food. You need medicine? I've got medicine. I've got clothes. I've got shelter. I can resettle you. I can move you. And they say, said to me, uh, Dr. Nick, uh, they raped my wife. They raped my daughters. They killed my girls and my wife in front of me. My mother and father were murdered. I'm the only one left in my extended family alive. They left me alive because they knew that would be worse than if they killed me. And I have no one to talk to to tell my story. Nick, before water, before food, before shelter, before medicine, would you sit here and let me tell you my story because no one cares about my story. These are lost Muslims. And as we sit with them for thousands of hours, men and women, you can almost watch like the dove descended upon Jesus, their humanity descends upon them and they become a real person again when somebody cares enough to hear their story. Before food, before medicine, before shelter, they want to become a human being. I think as church members, we often think we have to have all the answers before we go, and we have to have all these little things in order. And what I've learned over the years, especially from believers in persecution, is that if you'll stop and you'll listen to the person's story, you're going to see where your story and their story intersects. And when you find that point, that's where God's going to use all those things you've learned that you thought were in pat order before you went out to share Christ. You're going to find which one the Holy Spirit really wants you to use. Listening is the biggest thing 
we need to do as followers of Christ because we don't even know the story of the person sitting in the pew next to us. Oh. We have failed in our churches to listen to each other's stories. People come in, we sit down, we worship together, but until we really understand each other's story, I don't think we've reached the, the, the point of worship where we really worship. And so I challenge us as church members to listen to each other's story, but also in the grocery store, in the market. I love to sit and listen, sit with Muslim women and listen to their story of where, where God has intersected their life. They're just not aware of it. And then point that out to them. I know you guys speak all over the country and a lot of times speak to like on college campuses and to young people. We have some listeners to our podcast, to our broadcast, who are young people, 18, 19, 20, 25. God has called them to the mission field, or they think God might be calling. (laughs) They're not sure yet, but they think he might be. What advice do you have for them? Again, you've, you've served more than 35 years. What advice do you have for those people either right on the cusp of making that decision or, yes, God is definitely calling me, now what do I do? I, uh, I'm going to turn your words around a little bit because uh, both Ruth and I are PKs. She's a pastor's kid and I'm a pagan's kid. So I didn't grow up with all the religious terminology. And I can remember reading the Bible for the first time and getting goosebumps when I read that God spoke the world in the being. And I didn't know where sin came from and Adam and Eve. I didn't know those stories. And when I read Matthew through at one setting, as an 18-year-old kid, I, I remember getting to what I later on learned from my wife's family was called the Great Commission, and Jesus said, all power is given to me on heaven and earth, go. Well, I grew up in a hard family. When my dad said go, he didn't say sit there until I call you to go. If I didn't go at his command, uh, that was going to cost me something. Well, as a, a rule country boy who took English as a second language almost, when I read that, I, I read where Jesus commands us to go and call is about a specific place for a certain uh, uh, season of life. And 35 years on the mission field, I still believe that Jesus commands every follower of his to go, and whether it's across the street, whether it's to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth if you're lucky, but it is a command, and then we get to negotiate with the Holy Spirit through a call to Malawi for a while for us, and then uh, malaria ran us out of there, then a call to South Africa, then clearly reading the book of Acts together, and God called to Somalia. But that was all predicated, I would say to young people, if you are in Christ, you are commanded to go. It's not if you go, it's just where you go. Yeah, and some practical things. I would suggest that you put yourself in a community of believers that can hold you accountable to your walk with the Lord. I would say begin to learn, if you aren't already learning scripture stories and Bible stories and verses in the Bible, get on that. Believers in persecution who are oral communicators know by heart 70% of the stories of the scriptures. And that's our challenge. We've We've got a long way to go, but learn those scriptures. 
Find ways that you meet God and know how to meet God, whether you're in a sanctuary or outside or where there is no church, because as you go to the edge of lostness, there's not going to be a big sanctuary that you can go to on Sunday to worship. Can you meet God when you don't have that kind of thing? And then share your faith where you are. Go into those international restaurants in your community. Meet internationals on your campus. Find the international opportunities that you could have. And as you do that, God will hone in that call that he's put on your life to show you where he wants you to go. You know, we, we say to college students all the time, do two things. Uh, be in a small group for accountability of believers and do what Ruth has said, uh, learn the stories of the Bible, pray together, uh, learn how to write your own worship songs and sing them because you're not going to have a, that prepackaged where you go among unreached peoples. But be in a small group of godly men and women that, that will hold you accountable for sharing your faith, for living a godly life, and for goodness sakes, guys, get off the Internet. Pornography is killing us. I'm not going to say this is a direct thing, but this is one of the issues. For every single guy on the mission field, we have seven single women. It's like guys on college campuses are praying, Lord, here am I, send my sister. You know, where are we going to get the tough guys to go to the tough places? This culture does a good job of raising up pastor teachers. It does a very poor job raising up evangelists and church planters. And that's where we need to strive harder. So secondly, while you're in a small group with believers, uh, start a small group with a partner. You know, if you're a lady with another lady, a guy, another guy, and intentionally do this with Hindus and Muslims and or even just Caucasian or African-American people who are outside the kingdom of God. Those who are in small groups leading lost people to Christ and planting churches in America when they come to us, they're five years ahead of anybody with a Ph.D. in church planning who has not planted a church. So be into a small group for your own accountability and be in a small group for evangelist uh, purposes and learn. Make your mistakes at home. <laughs> Jesus sent the disciples out by two. They didn't have to take a purse with them, but it's just for a few weeks. Among their own people, he said, don't even go to Gentiles. There's so much wisdom in that. You make your mistakes at home where it doesn't get anybody killed. It doesn't get anybody kicked out of their family, usually, because the same mistakes that I make in a Kenya that's open and embracing of Christianity, I make that same mistake in a Somalia, I get people killed. So Jesus said, hey, go to Jerusalem. Get your mistakes worked out. At the same time, bring people into the kingdom of God. And then as you go into increasingly more difficult places, we can't change being sheep among the wolves, but there's nothing in the Bible that says we have to be stupid sheep. Amen. We're talking today on Voices of Martyrs Radio with Nick and Ruth Ripken. Nick is the author of The Insanity of God. I want to ask you a question about marriage, and this is something as a husband that is interesting to me, but... 35 years in ministry, 42 years of marriage now, are there some things that you have done either intentionally or accidentally that have served to kind of protect your marriage and keep it strong through all the different challenges that you faced over those years? 
I would say the first thing is I learned to pray for my husband and to be faithful in that praying, to ask God to protect him, but also to use him and bless him. So that's important. The other thing is uh, I have a husband who loves to give gifts. I guess that's his love language. And so he's always doing gift giving. But what he does probably more than he realizes, he makes sure that I'm included in what's happening in his life. There were many times that we traveled separately and he would go into Somalia or I would go in. We felt like it was important that our boys not lose both parents if something happened. And um, Nick was so good about carrying a little notebook in his pocket. And every time he had something that he thought, oh, I wish I could tell Ruth this, he'd jot it down. So that by the time three, four weeks passed, he came home, he would just open that notebook and he would go through all those stories. He, often he would take pictures, so he had some pictures to show me of what where he had been. But there are places in Somalia, but also even doing the interviews, that I didn't get to go. But I could tell you all about them. I could describe it. I could tell you what it smelled like, what foods tasted like, because my husband was faithful to include me in the ministry. And we've always realized that if we're going to share Christ with the nations who don't know him. We've got to model what church looks like in our home. And by doing that, we must do it together. I uh, am the smartest guy on earth because I <laughs> married Ruth, you know. And I need your listeners to understand that I am the spiritual leader of my home. I find where Ruth wants to go, and I lead her there. And that satisfies scripture, and mama's happy, and everybody's happy. But this takes a lot of intentionality. And again, where you have no place to pray and no place to play, and you're in the Djiboutis of this world, and uh, you have one restaurant, and you get to go buy a tough piece. They say it's beef, but it's probably horse or camel or something, and you pay 50 to $75 for that, and it's 150 degrees outside, and your air conditioning's not on, and if you hug your wife, you stick, you know, and, and a date is you go from your kitchen to your living room, how do you keep your marriage fresh? And, and also, uh, the church plays a part in that in coming out and saying, hey, let us take the kids for a week. And, and you and Ruth go out and go safari or whatever, or give us enough money to take our kids to a nice place for a week. But I, I think for our mission board, I give them a lot of credit, is, is that I'm not the missionary and Ruth is a missionary's wife. Matter of fact, I'm, a, I'm an unusually smart guy because Ruth knows how to do this stuff, and I've learned much about the kingdom of God from her family and from her. And watching her love on African people and watching her love on, on Somali women and women whom the world has cast aside and have circumcised and cut up and abused, and, and watching people respond to her smile and her heart. And, and she, one of her major spiritual gifts is, is crying. She not only cries at airports when we say goodbye, she cries when we drive by airports thinking of other people saying goodbye. Or she says that's her spiritual gift, and it has been. But, you know, in the Bible it says the two shall become one. And uh, when I'm away from Ruth... I always have this sense of loss and a sense of incompleteness and a sense of that my voice has no echo uh, and my words have no place to gather meaning. And so um, 
you know, Ruth's a really easy person to love, and she's the hardest person on earth to be away from. And, and, and so marriage is like witness. It takes a lot of intentionality. And it, sometimes it takes a lot of, of forgiveness. And, and you never can say, I love you uh, too often. And we try to say that to each other before we go to bed at night. We have our own little devotional rituals. But, you know, I, I don't think anything makes a couple stronger together uh, than praying together. There's an intimacy about prayer that when you invite God, or, or it's almost like you're inviting not God into your presence, you're inviting each other into God's presence, that there's nothing more personal, more intimate than, than that. And uh, Ruth, would you tell them what Muslims have asked us for so we can illustrate this even more? Yeah. As we've done interviews and we've talked to Muslims who really understand what we're trying to do, uh, they often say the two things that we really needed as we were coming to faith was how do Christians do marriage and how do Christians do children? And what had been exhibited to many of them was that the missionaries' homes were closed and they didn't get to go inside those walls so they never really saw clearly. And what we are seeing is in places where the missionaries are open and allowing Muslims and whoever they're sharing with to come inside and that we model for them what Christian marriage looks like, we're seeing faith grow in that location through that. I do think that we often, we've forgotten that it's during crisis that Satan comes after us the, the most harshly. And we've during those years of Somalia, the crisis of dealing with starvation and all that, it would have been easy for Nick and I to just kind of go separate ways. But we found out those were the years we needed each other more. And so I, I'm learning that in crisis, we've got to be who Christ needs us to be in front of the lost world, because the lost world is filling out that statistic that when a child dies, they immediately divorce. The lost world is, is finding that marriage is too hard, so we're going to quit. And what the Christians, what we want to model for those we meet is it's those crises that draw us closer to who we are because that's where we find God. And that's exactly what believers in persecution say. They say, don't feel sorry for us when we're going through this suffering because that's when God shows up. So as, as Nick and I have walked through 42 years of marriage, I promise people it gets better. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So don't give up too soon. So you're saying you've just about got him trained after 42 years? Almost house trained. I'm almost, I'm, almost, I'm past the other training, but I'm almost house trained. But, but you know, to watch Muslims watch us, they watch me look at Ruth and they watch Ruth look at me and we'll hear Muslim women say, uh, I, I've never had my husband look at me like that with that kind of tenderness, that kind uh, of warmth, and, and that makes them so hungry that, you know what, in America, America we fight over verses like, uh, wives submit unto your husbands as, as unto the Lord, and it almost feels like our civil rights have been totally violated 
But we stop and we need to go on to the next verses and, and that say, Husbands, love your wife and give your life for her. Muslim women say when they are introduced to those scriptures, if I ever were to find a man that would be willing to love me and give his life for me, not give my life for him, she said, I, I, don't, I can't imagine there's ever a man in my world like that. And when they see that I'm willing to lay down my life for my wife and, and that I love her with all of my being, if that's what comes with Jesus, they want that Jesus. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Nick and Ruth Ripkin. Nick is the author of a book called The Insanity of God. And uh, if you'll come to vomradio.net, we'll give you a link if you're looking to buy a copy of the book. One of our goals on Voice of the Martyrs Radio is to equip people to pray. Uh, so I'm going to ask you three things, three specific ways that we can pray. First, for missionaries, and we've talked a little bit about how we serve and how we bless missionaries, but give us one or two specific things to pray for the missionaries that we send out. I would probably back up to what I've already said, uh, pray for them uh, to learn the language and culture and, and to know that everybody that came to Christ in the New Testament came to Christ in a local language. There's no more open sesame to the hearts of lost people around the world than to be able to greet them, talk to them, and pray over them in their own languages. And if there's ever a person on earth that has butchered languages more than me, I don't want to meet them. But at the same time, those mistakes are some of the easily, even though they're bad, they're easily forgiven when they see the heart that's behind that. I would say pray for them to have stubbornness that they will not grow weary in doing well and not, not quit because we know that it's not going to be an instant success. It's going to take time, and people have to see you living out your faith for a period of time for them to really uh, figure out who this Jesus is. In, in Islam, in, in what we call the dangerously unreached, we get a little bounce of, of success or response at about four years. We get our biggest bounce somewhere between 10 and 12 years. And yet we have generation that thinks that, oh, there's no task that I can't accomplish in three years and then move on. This, this takes a lifetime. And, and yet when we talk to pastors in America, uh, it's almost universal. They really see a big uptick in their effectiveness as an American pastor in America at about 10 years. So th this, this takes time, and they've got to be able to watch your marriage and watch you with singles that are in your families and on your team. And in, in the Xhosa culture in South Africa, when the firstborn child comes along, the parents of the husband come and lives with you and studies your home for up to two weeks or more and then names your son or daughter firstborn on what they find in your home. You've got kids named love and joy and peace and divorce and hatred. And then when the second child is born, the parents of the wife come and stay two weeks or more and then names the child according to what they find in the home. Our African family in South Africa came when our third son came along and said, we're going to name him. We're going to stay with you for a couple of weeks. And I said to Ruth, it'd be better if I went somewhere. 
you know, then the kid has a chance at a good name. But they named him, after being with us, Siabulela, which means we are grateful, we are thankful to God, and the diminutive of that is Sabu, and that's the name that he cherishes. That's what they saw in our home, that they were thankful to God that we gave up country and family to bring our kids and live in their midst. We cherished that experience when I was terrified of it. Yeah. What would they name you who are listening if they came to your house for a few weeks? So we've talked about praying for missionaries. The second thing is persecuted Christians. Scripture calls us, remember those in bonds as if you were bound with them. Again, you've interviewed hundreds of persecuted Christians. Give us a couple of specific ways to pray for them. Of course, they cherish the prayers that we offer them, and so I'll, I'll thank you on their behalf because they said, please, as you go back, tell people thanks. So, of course, praying is important. My, my number one prayer is always, Lord, help them to be obedient to what you need them to do today, and when the day is over, allow them to celebrate that they have glorified you during the day. And my... Uh my request would be, I think the stories that often get highlighted is that pastor that's in prison for 17 years or that evangelist that we talked about in the Sandy of God in Russia for 17 years, another one in China for 31 years. But I think the real story is the, the wife, the mother, who's in that one-room house with seven kids for 17 years and had to be father and mother and really teach those children to trust God. And the man in prison, uh, usually it's the man, uh, his life, he's told what to do. He doesn't have many choices. Uh, she has a lot of options. And, and the few times that we've met men whose wives divorced them while they were in prison by the pressure of the authorities, those guys did not uh, make it through persecution intact. It's not the physical beatings that have the most long-term effects. It's the psychological, emotional things that happen that bear the most scars. And if they can get at you through your wife and children, they're, they're going to break you. But if your wife and children uh, are still leading the body of Christ and staying with Christ, and that word continues to filter uh, to that person that's in prison or under house arrest or whatever, uh, they, they can square their shoulders and straighten their back and walk in the light. And the last thing is Somalia. I know it's a, a country that you have left your heart, part of your heart for sure. Chaotic place. How do we pray for the nation and Specifically, how do we pray for the Christians who are there? Well, unlike I thought at the time, and even what I've said in this interview, it's usually after Pentecost where there were people to, who could walk with you, pray with you, support you, take care of your family. And we had none of that in the local Somali-believing community. They were all killed, all right? But the international-believing community said we will not allow Somalis to go in eternity without the opportunity to say yes or no clearly to Christ. And so since those days of trying to plant seeds on concrete 
and watching almost the buzzards eat it up and, you know, the vultures go at whatever we tried to sow. Uh, I, I wish I could tell the whole story, but I, I, I just don't dare to for security purposes. But we just need to trust that a certain part of the body of Christ that is in the Western world would not allow those deaths to be in vain. And we now globally in America, around the world, in places I can't talk about, where we had one and two people uh, seeking the salvation of the Somali people, we now have 50 and 60. And the plight and the future of the Somali people is much greater than I ever thought it would be when they chased us out years ago when our son died and Ruth's mother died that from the ashes of Somalia has come the, a greater witness than I ever dreamed. And some of those single men and women who are now married and there with their own children who have so much of the language and culture, I've got great hopes that both in, a, in the Western world and in Somalia itself, there's going to be a harvest of Somali souls that I never dreamed would be true. Yeah, and the Somalis are in our country they're everywhere, and so I'm excited about what God may do. So pray that God will bring a Somali to you so that you can tell them who Jesus is. There's a great request to close on. Lord, bring somebody my way that I can reach Somalia from my house, from my town. Nick and Ruth, what a great blessing to have this chance to converse with you and uh, your passion for the Lord comes through, and just thank you for being with us on Voice of the Martyrs Radio. You know, just thank you for what you do, and this has been a rich partnership for years and years and years, and uh, when the gifts of the body come together and the fruit of the Spirit comes through those gifts, I don't fear for the kingdom of God. Evil should be concerned about what the kingdom of God is doing. If you missed any of our conversation today with Nick and Ruth Ripken, you can hear it again at vomradio.net or in the VOM Radio podcast stream. You can also hear our previous conversations with the Ripkins and all the other episodes of VOM Radio. Again, that website is vomradio.net. Maybe you've heard the joke about suffering for Jesus by serving someplace like Hawaii. Our guest next week, actually does serve the Lord in Hawaii, but his calling is nothing to laugh at. He'll share how God is sending young people to share the story of God's love in needy and sometimes dangerous places around the globe. That's next week, right here on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.